so I have these new neighbors, and uh, they're a bunch of NYU bros. And uh, last night, at 3 in the morning, they started blasting like a rock band, like a video game where, you know, you play... Yeah. You know, I, so the drums and the guitar. <laughs> oh, I didn't know what to do. It just was like like thundering, pounding drums. Like You should immediately commit some kind of random act of violence against them. Well, the thing is, is that it was Friday night, and I didn't want to be like the cranky old guy. And I figured, you know, I, I was matter. dumb. Lay so down I, the law. It doesn't happen any night. I decided I would go the passive-aggressive route, okay? So when I woke up this morning at 9, I started hammering on the floor, and then I put the speakers all on the floor facing down, and I put on, you know, some good Commodore 64 uh, chiptune music, and then I left the apartment and went and got coffee. Yeah, but they're such college students. They probably don't mind. They probably didn't hear it. It's actually worse. When I, when I came home, there was a note on the door, and it was from my upstairs neighbor. Who was, oh. Like, devastated that I had ruined her morning. Oh. And so did you go upstairs, and did you try to straighten it out with the I knocked, neighbor? but she wasn't there, so I just I wrote on a note explaining that, you know... I was trying to deal with, you know, getting revenge on the downstairs neighbors, and I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed, I failed. But, you know, I, I, I did it the wrong way. No, you did it the right way. It was probably good. I, maybe it won't happen again. We'll find out. But <laughs> if it does happen again, you have to actually confront the individuals and tell them that they don't give them any more chances. You know, tell them the music is off, don't start music at 3 o'clock in the morning. Or are you going to punch him in the face? I knew you would say that. You're lucky to live alone. You live alone? Yeah, but I'm not lucky. I'm lonely. I was kind of hoping you wouldn't go there because, you know, I'm trying to bring you back on the show. You know, you are a listener favorite, but it's like, you know, always the same thing with you. Like, oh, I'm home alone. I'm boring. I'm boring. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not the Peter Choice that I'm, I remember. People change. Seasons change. You know, it's crazy. I, I had gotten out some some old recordings that we had done, you know, uh, 2003, 2004-ish. And it was so exciting. You were, you were really? on all the sets. They were always something going on, huh? Yeah. I mean, you, were, you had this whole dream of going to California and becoming a famous extra. Blame Ricky Gervais. What does Ricky Gervais have to do with you not working? Well, he has that show about extras. There's a TV show where they, apparently it's a comedy, and it shows how great it is to be an extra. So all of the people that don't know what to do with their life have left their part of town and come to Los Angeles to, to do extra work. So it's not that there's not enough extra work, there's just too many extras. So this is why you haven't worked any? <laughs> That, that plus something else, but I can't figure out what it might be, because uh, it's probably me not um, trying hard enough. But you know what? I went and I got this service. It's a service that helps you look for work. You have to pay $65 a month for it. It's called the calling service, and they call all the different agencies for you. So have you gotten anything for this? I've gotten one thing. I got something last week I got on Glee. But I had to travel two hours in each direction to get on it. Where was it? It was in this place called Santa Paula, which is up by Santa Barbara. This is like the the Broadway uh, put on a musical show? It's um, kids in a glee club in high school. It's the gayest show on TV. So are you like 
someone in the audience that goes to see them or like one of the teachers or no 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 i can't i really can't tell you we had to do all these things like sign confidentiality waivers so that we wouldn't tell anybody what the last show is because if we do then we're going to ruin it and there's a huge fan base for this show and uh like they're really suspicious of people putting stuff online or talking about it before it comes out because it's a big surprise what do you mean you're like you're in the season finale Yes, I'm in the season finale. It's a big surprise. All I can tell you is that I was rising in blood and laying on the ground for a long time, and the director really liked what I did. So, but I can't really tell you the end. I can't tell you what happened at the end. Wait, you're you're a guy covered in blood laying on the ground in the Glee Club show? Yes, but because they they take the train back to uh, where they come from, Lima, Ohio, but a suicide bomber uh, boards the train, and the next thing you know, there's mass pandemonium. And then all I can say is that there's a lot of blood and a lot of broken body pieces. But hopefully you'll get to see me. <laughs> it sounds like you've finally found your way back to the big time. Yeah, but no matter how good you are as an extra, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't lead to any more callbacks or anything. It's all very random how you get on. Uh. You know, this is not the Peter Choice I used to know. You don't sound like him. Yes, I was very handsome, though, when I was 45, but now this was eight years ago, and things have changed. So you think it's just that you've you've fallen apart? I think I hit the wall. I think I hit the wall, yes. What happened? What do you mean, hit the wall? I don't think I'm as good-looking as I used to be. So is that why you just sit home and sulk about it? Yeah, and apply makeup where it needed. I I've moved to Brooklyn and I was just a photographer, DJ guy. And when you're in New York, you run into people, you know. And if you're you know interested in you know culture and the past and whatever, even just your surroundings, you you'll run into that one guy who's like forty thousand years old at a party, and he'll start talking your ear off. When Conrad Ventura moved to Brooklyn a few years ago, he kept running into old Warhol scenesters. And he said he found these people, like Billy Mame and B.B. Hansen, more interesting than the generic hipsters that filled the galleries and the clubs. And he got to thinking, maybe he should try collaborating on something. And I just had this idea, like a seed in my head, and it finally hatched. And I thought, this would be an interesting idea to take the screen test that I know these guys did with Andy Warhol back in the 60s and redo them. Andy Warhol shot most of his silent film portraits or screen tests at his factory studio in New York City between 1964 and 1966. He filmed most of his regulars as well as his friends and celebrities, basically anyone he thought needed a screen test for their future superstardom. Museum curator Callie Angel painstakingly documented all of them for a monograph she published just before her tragic suicide. I have what I call my Bible, which is Kelly Angel's uh, catalog raisonné. It's the screen tests of Andy Warhol. And um, 
It's just been by my bed for years, right? Since it came out. Using Callie Angel's book as a guide, Conrad Ventura started to redo Andy Warhol's screen tests. Many of the old superstars were happy to work with him. When I met Conrad, he'd already recorded with Billy Name, Mario Montez, Ultraviolet, B.B. Hansen, Jonas Mikas, and Taylor Mead. The starting point is you have the frame, you have the lighting, you know what the subject looked like 45 years ago, and you have a vague idea, given the notes in the book, what they do, because it's noted there, whether they blinked or sneezed or whatever. No one ever sneezed, but you get the idea. One of these old Warhol superstars, though, was making things difficult for Conrad, Ivy Nicholson. Ivy Nicholson was one of the top international models in the 1950s and a Warhol superstar in the 1960s. Over the last few decades, she's battled drugs and homelessness, but she's never stopped believing in herself. She still believes that she is a superstar and Andy Warhol's bride. So she's wanted to make sure that Conrad gets it right. Uh, there's a lot of redos with, with Ivy. She, she really, <clears throat> she's tough on me. A few months ago, Conrad invited me to go with him to visit Ivy Nicholson at her Staten Island For apartment. Your safety, all passengers are to remain off stairs, ramps, and landings until the ferry has come to a complete stop at the terminal. I'm trying to clean up this sink and it's not working. The first thing I noticed when I walked into the apartment is that someone had recently thrown up in the sink. Other than that, everything else looked ancient, including Ivy Nicholson. But boy, oh boy, was she excited that Conrad Ventura had taken an interest in her. I love the original idea of Conrad... Uh people on on tv sets that's a fantastic idea you know for people who only want to look at themselves which there are quite a few more than we imagine oh i mean i basically did i installed these in one gallery and they were all on tv sets Conrad did some really great photos of me in front of it. If I look my age, I make him redo them. And in the last ones, I look 35, too. And magnificent, like an Italian princess. Conrad had just finished editing a music video for Ivy, and tonight he was going to show it to her for the first time. Yeah. Mm. The film. We must watch the film. Goody goody. When did you uh, When did you do your album of songs? Like when When were those recorded? Oh, various times. And, uh, well, the one I worked on was the Andy Warhol song. Where in the world is Andy Warhol? Or uh, no, where did you go? Oh, where did you go? Andy Warhol. Yeah. Where did you go? Are you in heaven? Are you in hell? How can I tell? How can I tell? Did you really love me the way I loved you? Did you really love me the way I loved you? Let's watch it. Uh, I hope it's up to your standard. In the video, Ivy cavorts around in a park with an Andy Warhol look-alike. They play peekaboo behind trees. Are you in heaven? Are you in heaven? There is a childlike enthusiasm 
in every movement Ivy makes. How can I tell? Now did you really love me? The way I I'm not mad about that shot. Oh, he's coming out of it. No wonder. Wow. <laughs> I look more enthusiastic than him. <laughs> I mean, the whole song, I like it's, that too. it's eight minutes long, so I, oh, uh... well, fine. I actually, well, I didn't have enough for eight minutes. That holding hands, no. That's uh, not a good... He Look, I don't have wrinkles in my hands, and he pushed it up as if I have wrinkles. No, that I don't like. I like everything else so far. Ivy got really upset at the close-up shot of her hand, which plainly showed the passage of time. Okay. Do you like everything else? Yes. Great. See, falls. Yeah, I definitely like it. Oh, good. I, I, you shot this when I was in my 40s, right? <laughs> oh, my Conrad. No. no, I will actually be 78 this month. And I don't look it, Nispa. So I need to find a way to kick my friend Peter Choice in the ass and get him back on his feet. I don't want him to end up like Ivy Nicholson, but I'm not sure what I should do. The other night I dug up a few old recordings we did to get some inspiration, and they made me laugh so hard I figured I'd just share a few with you since they predate too much information. Here's one from about 2005 when he first went to Hollywood to make his way to the big screen. One of my sister's uh, neighbors who works as a stand-up comedian told me to go to Central Casting. And I went in and they simply took my picture and they said that I had a good look. And I, the next thing I knew, the next day, I was on a TV show. And uh, then the next day, I was called to be on another TV show. And since then, they've been placing me in the background of all these different TV shows and movies. How did this happen? Uh, I can't even, I can't understand it now. I'm on a TV show, um, about Charles Manson's life called Helter, it's a remake of Helter Skelter. And I'm in a movie about the LA riots. It's a musical, it's a rap comedy musical. And I was sitting there with Snoop Doggy, Snoop Doggy Dog all night. Uh, these things go on for like 12 hours. I'm sitting there as the white lawyer that defends uh, Officer Coons and the white policeman who beat up Rodney King. And they actually gave me a line there and, uh, and what, what was your line? Your Honor, these men are innocent. It's funny that all these people come to L.A. with their resumes and headshots and been working for years, and they don't get anywhere. You know, there's only like 1% of actors that are working. But me, I snuck in through the back door. All I did was have my picture taken, and people liked me. And um, then I get called up for these TV shows. Like, what's on TV tonight? Look, you know, I have to look in the newspaper to see what's on, because some of those shows, I'm on. 
it's funny because I was watching uh, the movie The Producers, uh-huh. and there's all these background actors. These background actors got paid to dress up as Hitler and do this whole scene. You know, and that's the kind of work that I'm doing now. A lot of it's really, really fun. You know, for 12 hours, you sit there, you sit, you stand around, but then you, you, you go in when it's your turn, and they, they do a couple of takes, and um, that's my job now. To, like, run down supermarket aisles and sing songs and, uh, you know, cross from here to there. And some days I make only minimum wage, which is $54 for eight hours. And it's never eight hours, so it's always at least $125. And sometimes it's double that. It's $300 if I made a SAG voucher. The way you make a SAG voucher is if you're called foreground background. And what I do is I come onto the set and I realize where the camera is and I do something special that the other background people aren't doing. Um, oh, I don't know how, how to explain this on the phone. Okay, there was this movie called uh, Shop Girl, a Steve Martin movie. Uh-huh. And the scene opens up with the camera just panning into Saks Fifth Avenue on Beverly Hills. It's the beginning of the movie. And they just wanted background people to walk in front of the store. So I took it upon myself to walk in front of the store, but with a newspaper. And as I walk a, 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 across the, the length of the block of the store, the newspaper, I keep folding it smaller and smaller and closer and closer to my eyes. So I'm doing a little slapstick comedy way in the background. Steve Martin himself saw, um, looked at the camera dailies and said, hey, that's funny. So they made, they actually took a still shot of me and they gave me a, what's called um, a day player rate. They actually featured me in this movie. And, it, and I got $634 as a day player because I made up my own thing as a background. And on, on this... Uh, program, this HBO uh, program, Deadwood, um, I was just a background player, but when they said, all right, background action, and you just walk across the street, I walked as a bow-legged cowboy, <laughs> right? I walked bow-legged. So this can go either way. Either way, The director can shout, hey, stop that, you know, because you're upstaging and you're, you're just supposed to be in the background. Or they can come out and they say, hey, that's really good. You're the town idiot. You know? What happened when you were walking bow-legged? When I was walking bow-legged, the, not the director, because if the director talks to you, you get way more money. But the assistant director said, hey, that's really good. You are the town idiot. So I got paid <laughs> double. I got paid a union wage for that day. Unlike these other actors that have been doing this for a long time, I find out where the camera is, I see where it is, and I see how to get into the frame. And I always think of something to do to elevate my background work. Last January, I got to go to Angoulême, the international comics festival in France. There was a possibility that I might get to meet Moebius, one of my favorite artists. At the previous year's festival, some of my publisher friends had had the pleasure of dining with him, and they promised to bring me along this time if there was another one. But he didn't show up. He was too ill. And then, in March, 
he died. A few weeks ago, at a dinner party here in New York, I met a young artist who actually got to spend a few weeks last summer hanging out with Moebius. His father runs a bed and breakfast for artists, and Moebius, who was ill, came with a group. Damien McDonald had an extraordinary encounter. Moebius even took some time out to read Damien's unpublished graphic novel. I asked him to share some of his reflections. Picture of summertime in the countryside, in the French countryside, uh, with a very hot sun, of course. He very regularly walked around with uh, a little uh, book in which he'd draw with very, very minute pens. Uh, he uh, saw me drawing at more than one moment, and he, he started discussing with me, and we he kind of decided to share his views on perspective, because that was one of the things that was really uh, questioning him. And uh, we came to this uh, very interesting conclusion that they were probably uh, three types of perspective. So, so this sounds a little bit brutal and a little bit uh, simplified, but basically that was it. There would be a kind of human perspective which is rather flat and horizontal, and a divine perspective, which is uh, very uh, vertical. Uh, and both of those perspectives, for him, were not the ones that the illustrator uh, would really want to use. He preferred what he'd call a kind of uh, angel's perspective, which would be mm, not horizontal nor vertical, but somewhere uh, between those two. It gave a, a diagonal gaze into reality, and it allows the illustrator to give uh, a kind of elevated feeling to the person who's looking at the drawing. You you, you elevate them, and they, they, they feel a kind of um, physical reaction to the drawing. And I think that's one of the things that he was really concerned with, um, most of our very late-night discussions were uh, turned around that subject. He said something which I'd realized uh, previously in his way of behaving is he felt morally uh, uh, inclined to like certain drawings and morally uh, disturbed by other drawings, and it's got nothing to do with what they represented. The, the represent, what was represented could be gruesome or anything. The... the, the the, uh, the pleasure or the displeasure came from the actual way things were drawn. I've been looking at his drawings since a very early age, and uh, they've had an influence on uh, not only my way of drawing and my way of uh, con conceiving art, but they've had an influence on my way of conceiving life. And I think he... Uh, he has that uncanny capacity of uh, changing people, changing people's way of seeing life, uh, because he doesn't consider art as uh, the final result of his work. I think it was a way of conveying ideas and feelings. And uh, when when I met him, I was meeting someone who was uh, going through a hard time, who was uh, at the end of his life and very ill. Uh, so it was a painful experience as well to meet someone who's uh, having such a hard time. But the beauty was that uh, despite his suffering, he was still 
uh, putting all his energy into his art and all his uh, desires were turned towards beauty. And uh, that was a, a very, very moving thing to witness. weeks ago I'm riding the subway. It's late at night and I'm wet and muddy. Earlier in the evening as I was walking to catch the train, some inconsiderate driver totally soaked me. So I look like a bedraggled rat. Plus I have my gigantic orange backpack with me and it's overflowing with this large skillet that I'd picked up that afternoon. So I feel a bit self-conscious when I notice the attractive blonde woman staring at me from across the aisle. And then I think at about the same moment, we recognize each other. Her name is Anne, and we had once gone out on a date. I had met Anne at a party. At the time, she was a recent design graduate working as a consultant. She was very attractive, very funny, and interested in lots of things. We really hit it off. And when the night came to a close, I asked her to meet me the following evening for coffee. She said yes. Now, at this time in my life, I was living in an unheated basement apartment. It was perfect for me as the only thing I cared about doing was drawing cartoons. It was basically a live-in art studio. I didn't even have a phone. Well, at first there was a phone, but it got disconnected. You see, one night I got lonesome and I dialed up one of those 900 numbers and I got suckered into talking to some woman with a sexy voice for almost four hours. This was back in the late 90s, before the internet put these sort of people out of business. But this woman didn't know anything about cartoons, so I don't know why I was even interested. She kept asking me if I wanted her to talk dirty about Garfield. Anyways, it was a sordid, sordid affair, and when I didn't pay the $200 phone bill, they disconnected the line. But that was fine by me. I got myself a voicemail service. People could call a number and leave me a message. This was more than adequate, because there was a payphone down the street, and so I could check my messages and return phone calls on a regular basis. Remember, payphones used to be everywhere. And in Brookline, Massachusetts, where I was living in this basement apartment, it cost only 10 cents to use one. Anyway, for some reason, most of the girls I met were bothered by this voicemail thing. I mean, every girl I would meet at a party or a show would just totally freak out when I explained to them my phone situation. So I did not bring it up the night of the party when I met Anne nor did I bring it up when we sat down for coffee. Instead, we continued our conversation about our favorite books and favorite movies. She loved Henry Miller and David Lynch. She told me about the books she hoped to one day write herself. I told her about the cartoons that I was working on. 
there was chemistry, electricity, and connection. So when it was time for me to leave, I felt it was safe to bring up my phone situation. And I had no choice for I wanted to invite her over to my place the following day. Well, it was an instant transformation. Darkness swept across her face and her eyes went cold. And all of a sudden, I was no longer an aspiring creative type, but rather a creepy scam artist, a potential rapist. I sat back down in my seat and tried to explain to her that this phone thing was not that big of a deal and that if she wanted, she could call me at my job. At the time, I was working four nights a week as a doorman at a luxury building for wealthy foreign students, a job that enabled me to draw uninterrupted for six hours at a time. And even though we had talked about this earlier in the evening, earlier she had said it demonstrated just how dedicated I was, but now my job was obvious proof that I was a total, total loser. And in the space of five minutes, she undid everything. All of a sudden, we had nothing in common. All of a sudden, there was a boyfriend that she was not yet over. And all of a sudden, she remembered that she was going to be so busy with work over the next few months, there would be no time to see me, ever. Of course, I was devastated. And I called her quite a number of times over the next few days and left messages on her answering machine telling her so. And I told her that she could call me back at my voicemail and leave me a message, and then I could call her back and we could talk about it some more. But she never did. So now, here she is on the subway, sitting across from me, staring at me. And she's with a guy, some lawyer doctor type, some guy with broad shoulders and an expensive haircut. And she's whispering to him, probably telling him all about how she'd made the mistake of meeting me once for coffee. And this guy looks me up and down and snickers. And even though it only adds to my rage and shame, I reach into my pocket and I pull out my iPhone. Yes, even though I know that we are deep underground and that there is no reception, I take out my phone and I put it to my face and I start talking. Listen to another one of those old recordings of my friend Peter Choice, back from when he was taking Hollywood by storm. Last night I was in an elevator with Patricia Arquette, and I was there all night being filmed, and I'm right there in the scene, and I didn't know that she was Patricia Arquette until I called my friend later and she said, oh yeah, the star of that show is Patricia Arquette. And I went, damn, and I felt so stupid because I don't, even, I don't even know who these people are. You know, actors are egotistical. They don't really care about other people. They don't care about who you are. And it comes down to the extra world too. In fact, when I'm standing next to a famous person, like I'm impressed that I'm in that position. 
but I don't really care about the famous person. I care about getting my own mug on the camera. The point of the movie, I always say, is me. I am the star of the movie. So when the movie comes out, like I saw this movie Sideways the other day, it was this long, ponderous thing about drinking wine. It's another one of the greatest films, the best film of the year. It's like, I didn't know, because all I was looking for was the scene where they finally get married, because I'm in the church, and I saw my head go by. That was the movie to me. It's crazy to watch um, any movie or TV show with me because I, I, I get real screwed up with the plot because I'm always just looking in the background. I know him. Hey, look, that's Tom. Hey. You know, that's all I do, especially with the HBO shows. There's so many people just running around in the background. Some extras actually know who all the actors are and they're fans. But for the most part, they're egomaniacs like me. And all we, we think that we are the actors. So the film might be all about the dialogue, but the, the real film is about who's standing next to the people immersed in this dialogue that we always hear as trite because we're not saying it. And we're really the stars. And, and, and just like our little movements, like the fact that they don't really want us to move, they don't want us to overact, like that's good acting. Like the fact that I didn't move my hand or go or overreact, but I just move my eyes just slightly. They're going to like that. They're going to keep that in, and I know I'm not going to be focused out. Every now and again, that's not, uh, there are actors that you meet on set, and they stay way in the background. Like, they don't want to be seen. They're too important to be seen doing extra work, so they hide in the background. So you have people like me that always just go right up and press my mug against the camera. I think that's what works best for me. They see me and uh, couldn't hurt me. But there's a lot of people with this crazy pompous attitude. No, I can't be seen doing extra work. My agent will never call me if he sees me in this movie way in the background. You really hear that a lot. Yeah. And I wonder, that is such crap. Like, I'm sorry, we saw you uh, uh, standing to the right of uh, Barbara Streisand. You were a little fuzzed up. We know that was you, so we're going to cancel your gig. How dare you lower yourself? The other day, I was on TV three times, but and I actually stood there. I was going to call you, but then I didn't because I realized I cannot make a person watch an entire hour of judging Amy because I may or may not be in that jury. But don't you don't you feel that there's I mean there's there's you know larger horizons? I mean this is this is kind of hack work. I mean, you're, you're in the background. Yeah, but you're putting a negative spin on, so what should I do? Is hang up and feel bad that I'm just doing this? What are you doing? It is hack work, but I try to keep my dreams within my reach, um, so I don't have any crazy, pompous dreams of starring in something, but I do have dreams that, like, within a few months, I'll have, like, one or two lines in some moderate movie, and something like that would be really uh, elating for me. So you're, you're, we're talking like fame on a more manageable scale. Yes, that's my dream. <laughs> but you know, any fame, any two bits, like you make make fun of me because I just walked past the camera on um, on Full House. But I'm there. I mean, I'm on Full House, and you're never going to be on a on a TV show. I mean, mm. At least I'm there. I'm, I'm there every day. And it's not about the money, but it's, it's, I can't speak for all extras, but, but so, it's an attitude. So is there such a thing as a, a career in, in being an extra? Uh, well, you have to have a, back, you have to have a backup. 
damn you, Ricky Gervais, for ruining it for my friend, Peter Choice. Hello? Why did you block me on Facebook? Who, who is this? Why did you block me on Facebook? Jennifer I didn't block you on Facebook. I, I deleted my profile. I thought you blocked me. You are calling me out of the blue because you thought I blocked you on Facebook. We, we haven't even spoken in years. This is bizarre. Are you in rehab? No. You think I'm in rehab because I deleted my Facebook profile? Well, I'm flattered you noticed I was, I was gone. Please, if you ever looked at my page, you would notice that all of my friends are hot. You know, you always kind of stood out and people commented on it. People were always shocked when they found out that I went out with you. I, I wouldn't say we went out. I did not call you to hear your bullshit again. Uh, okay, yes, yeah, sorry. You called me because you thought I blocked you on Facebook. Well, but why would that even matter, if you don't mind my asking? Because my life is really great right now, okay? It's great, and I wanted you to know that. Uh, okay, I, I'm really glad that you're doing great. Um, are, are, are you still in, in grad school? No, I'm not still in grad school. I got my Ph.D. last year. I'm teaching now in the Bay Area at the University of San Francisco. That's awesome. What are you teaching? Um, do you remember that I was getting a PhD in media studies? So probably, obviously, I'm teaching media studies. What, what is with the hostility? I, I, we have not spoken together in years. Why, why are you so angry? Look, I just feel like this really isn't fair because you should know all of this information. And if you were on Facebook, you would know that I'm a professor, that I have a job that gives me a sabbatical every four years, that I'm traveling the world. Instead, I have to call you and tell you because you're not there. Um, it's totally acceptable to not be on Facebook, you know. The only people I know who aren't on Facebook are the people who are too ashamed of how lame they are or the people who are in rehab. I am not in rehab, okay? And I'm not on Facebook because I got sick of it. Look, no one gets sick of Facebook. I did. You got dumped or something, didn't you? Are you calling me to find out if I'm, like, single? Oh, my God. I'm engaged. That, that's great. Yeah, you know what? It is great, Ben. And you know what else? is? You would know all of this if you were still on Facebook. And you know what else you would know? You would know that he is smart. He's good-looking. He's kind. He volunteers in the community. There are photos of us running marathons because we do that kind of shit together. He also loves to cook which I recall some people never wanting to take time to do. He and I cook together all the time in his awesome house with his great kitchen. And he's really successful. And he likes his work, which I think is really important. He works at Twitter. I really don't understand why uh, you, you've called me. Look, this is totally not fair, and you know it. And you know it because for the past few years, I have been stuck in grad school, sitting at this grad school computer lab, looking at all this stuff that you're posting about how awesome your life is and all the cool places you get to go and all the great people that you get to meet and talk to. And then I have to see photo upon photo upon photo of these girls and you. And every time I comment on something to have an interaction with you, you don't even comment back. 
and you don't even click like, which is like the least of things that you could have done when I graduated? I think we should just pretend that this never happened and I should just hang up, okay? I- I'm going to hang up the phone. No! Now. Oh, my God. No, I am not. You are not hanging up because I want you to know that my life is great, okay? And since you aren't on Facebook, I have to f***ing call you up on the telephone to tell you that. All right, then. How about you just uh, finish up with uh, uh, the, the how great your life is rap, and then we'll leave it at that. So, yes, I have a job as a professor in the Bay Area. I have a giant Victorian mansion and a hot fiancé who's an executive at Twitter who cooks with me, and we run marathons. Um, I have tons of support and help in my career. I really like what I'm doing. I'm going to be able to travel the world. I look great. I have great friends. Um, all over, and they're very good looking. Uh, okay, that, I think I think that's enough. I, I I get the picture. I'm really excited, Jennifer, that things are going so great for you, and and thank you for calling to 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 let me know. But I I think that that's you enough. know you know Ben, it's like I always said it would be. You know the tortoise and the hare. Uh. Obviously, you don't remember, but when you broke up with me because you thought that I was going to be a grad student forever. Um, I told you one day in the future I was going to actually get to the finish line before you as the tortoise, even though you thought you were going to so win the race. Oh, my God. And that's what this call is all about, is me letting you know that I am passing you by. But we were never in a race. That's what you thought, dick. Rabbit. Rabbit dick. They want me to join the Lampoon. So they come to me to try out for them, which I found very offensive. I had to submit uh, things and you get cut and all this crap. Having just gotten into Harvard, I was extremely high on myself. So what I basically thought I would do is just recycle old pieces from high school so I wouldn't actually have to do anything. There was a joke at the time, which was what's black and white and red and can't turn around in a phone booth. And the answer was a nun with a javelin through her head. Which is not funny now, and I'm not sure it was funny then. But it, you know, it inspired me. It inspired me, and my senior English project was a series of poems, and that was the theme, the nun with a javelin through her head was the theme of my poems. I wrote a sonnet, <laughs> I wrote a ballad, uh, an ode. I had a nice William Carlos Williams, uh, I can't remember, nothing as pretty as a... None. Robert Frost, uh, which ended, um, uh, my mount is taken with the red of none with javelin through head and soon makes up for hours unfed and soon makes up for hours unfed. The head of my high school uh, in New York was a former priest. <laughs> and my English teacher decided that I should read those poems to the auditorium at the graduation. <laughs> but he had to pass them through the former priest. That didn't go forward. 
That did not go forward. But I took those poems with me to Harvard and I submitted them to the Lampoon. And the people at the Lampoon, they used to come down to my dorm. Guys who knew me and who'd asked me to try out for the Lampoon would bring people to meet me for the Nun poems. Very, very popular. But, uh, you know, I was so, I thought it was completely appropriate that people would want to meet me for the Nun poems. That was, I was a f superstar back then. So I made it through all the things, and then they came the last night when the last cut had been decided. They came, three of them came with big, expensive bottles of booze. They came to my dorm, and they, midnight, and they uh, we had a nice party, and they all congratulated me. And then what happened after that? Uh, apparently at the Lampoon, after you make all the cuts, and it's all final, and they're only, you know, the final eight, they have a little ceremony where they, and this is in the film Animal House was based on this apparently, they, the scene, they, they show pictures, they show like a, a slide of the person and then everyone throws beer at it and pretzels and they all make noises. And when my picture came up, it's a ceremonial thing, and when my picture came up, the president of the Lampoon at the time, do you know who Conan O'Brien is? <laughs> He's a piece of shit. Yeah, he stands up and he says, this guy may be the next John Updike, but I don't like him, and I don't get him. And I say, we vote him down. And he, and he puts his thumb down in front of my picture, and he stands up with big thumbs down. And they, they elect not to ratify my um, joining of the, of the Lampoon. So they came the next morning to take back all the booze. And I said, did you steal the booze? Is the booze not yours to give me? And they said, no, uh, some terrible things happened. Uh, can't really explain it, but Conan O'Brien rejected your uh, admission to the lamp pool. I was very upset, very upset. They were very embarrassed because they'd asked me to uh, try out and then they brought me the good news and uh, we'd had the negotiations and then they had to bring me this terrible news. So they investigated it and it was their theory that, uh, and I'm sure, you know, that there's a much, there's a greater truth here, but their theory was that the, the strongest piece I had was the non-pumps and they felt that Conan O'Brien, who uh, was a good Catholic at the time, you know, liked to do his own non-jokes and didn't want some little scraggly little Jew from New York doing, you know, nun jokes on him. So that was the only, that, you know, whatever. That worked for me at the time. That made it a very biblical battle. Now at the time, Conan O'Brien was seven feet tall and 103 pounds. And he just kind of, he was just a wraith. He was a redheaded wraith and he would flit all around the campus with that awkward body crap, shaking and doing all these, laughing at himself. I mean, he was a freak. But a powerful freak. I was a freshman. He used to host these mixers and things. And so I would see him a lot. And I just really, uh, I hated him. I would stare at him and my roommates would uh, heckle him. And we just, oh God, we hated him. We hated him and we mocked him. He was, although powerful, a laughable character back then because he was so odd. And he was always on his own. But uh, he had the power. He had the keys. He had the keys to the kingdom. Even then, prick. I didn't realize what I realize now, which is that you get into the lampoon and you're set for f***ing life. You go off to Hollywood, you score some babes, you have a mansion, you get $100 million a year and you disappear into the sunset. I didn't realize that then. 
And I thought it's just a funky little building and they're all naked giving each other hand jobs. I don't need to be a part of that. So I was, uh, I was insulting. And what bothered me was the John Updike thing, because back then, to me, that was a huge insult. Because I was such a, <laughs> you know, they, they had to beg me to try out. I was very arrogant. I'd given them my old, you know, pieces from my childhood, uh, you know, the, the year, the previous year. That's old stuff. And that was enough. And I only had to do one out of four pieces, and I still made it. And then some lunatic zapped me. I was still very, very, very high on myself. And the Updike comparison just, well, <laughs> made me just made me really uh, infuriated me. It was a very demeaning thing to be compared to John Updike. Then um, my junior year, and I believe Conan's senior year, they had uh, Harvard's 10 Funniest Wits and Pundits on the radio, and uh, I was elected to that very, very uh, auspicious group. And I went, and little did I know that Conan O'Brien would be one of the other 10 and he brought his little flunkies to do little routines with him. You know, the rest of us were humble enough to know that we were, and not all our friends were voted, so we didn't bring, you know, our posses, because we, our posses weren't voted uh, the ten funniest uh, wits and posses. So we came by ourselves. But Conan needed the support and his, sta- his crack staff. He had little things, do guys doing riffs, do sound effects, people doing shoes. And I mean, I had some funny things to say, but I could not say them. The guy was three feet from me, and I just kept muttering, you f***ing, I don't need you to f***ing eat me, you piece of shit. And I go, f*** you come on, And they turned off my microphone, but I was not aware of it. So I just muttered, and uh, <laughs> like they basically turned off my mic without telling me. And uh, it was a girl I was trying to impress at the time, and I, and I was done with the show. And my anger was uh, controlled. I went into the dining hall and I saw her. I'm like, hey, good show, huh? And she's like, oh, they turned off your mic five minutes into it. You were muttering obscenities. So he's, that was the beginning, really. That was the second from Conan. Uh, but I moved on. I, 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 you know, I grew out of it and uh, went, uh, went far and wide and ended up, you know, two, two blocks from, from Harvard. And then, I don't know, 10 years later, something like that, I'm... I'm listening to the news, and Letterman's moved ahead, and I need someone to fill the spot, and I hear this unknown writer, Saturday Night Live writer, has been to take the role, host, and I just knew it was coming. Conan O'Brien. I watched five minutes of the first show. He's such a talentless, awkward, stupid goof that, I mean, I actually enjoyed watching him for five minutes, and I thought, this is going to be canceled after, you know, half an episode. It's so pathetic that I actually, you know, I I, I, I couldn't watch too much of it, because he was on nationwide TV, but it was so humiliating, I thought it was marvelous. And then you'd hear occasionally, oh, I think he's okay. He's getting better. Then I start hearing, uh, yes, he's $5 million a year for 10 years. He, he's dating, uh, he's dating some actress. He's dating some model. You see these people every once in a while. You see a guy who's so untalented or so this, and he's making and he's everywhere, and you think, what? what? Oh, okay, there is a devil, and there are some, there are deals to be made. Two years ago, uh, two years ago, an acquaintance, someone who did not know this part of my past, uh, wanted to hook me up with a woman here in Boston who was supposed to be, you know, just a wonderful, all a wonderful start to finish, everything, great. So I began to communicate with her in the email. I think we had a phone call, and then we were going to get together. And the night we were going to meet, I get an email from her that says, we really don't know that much about each other. I just want you to know three things about me. 
and uh, before we meet and you can send me three things about you uh, and the three things about me are number one I don't remember what it was number two I don't remember what it was. number three I just love Conan O'Brien he's my favorite celebrity if I were going to stalk anyone it would be Conan O'Brien I just ba 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 God, I, you know, if it had been a joke, it would have been funny. But it was just so horrifying. I, I mean, <laughs> he, he continues he continues to torment me. And uh, he's on every night. You can't escape. Every night before I go to sleep, before I say my prayers and go to bed, that sucker. <laughs> I mean, there's nowhere to hide. In the civilized world, there's nowhere to hide. If this story were ever revealed to Conan, the first thing he would say is, who? What? And probably for an hour, they'd, you know, he'd think about it, you know, if someone paid him, uh, you know, $20 million an hour for his time and uh, tried to, you know, tell him about this. He finally, he would say, no, I don't know, I don't know. If maybe the nun poems thing might, might bring it back. And then he would say, oh, that guy sucked. This is my this is my shining moment recounting this to people all over the world and people in, in, in countries people don't understand a word of what I'm saying. The only thing they understand from this whole story is Conan O'Brien because they get him over there. So I will say the whole story and I'll say and they go oh Conan O'Brien oh ho ho and then they think I'm I think maybe I've met him or something and they love me. It just it's just a whole the whole backfiring is just extraordinary. It's and I, I you know I know it's happening, but it's, I'm so pathetic that I'll you know if I can get a, a drink from some guy because they understand the word Conan O'Brien even if that's a tribute to Conan I'll take it at this point. There's no there's no good ending. That's the tragedy here is that I think you realize and, and everyone realizes that there is no happy ending. The happy ending is that some fool will will listen to this somewhere and think oh. I'm not so pathetic. That guy's much more pathetic than I am. Oh, that's the happy ending now. That's the happy ending. This episode of Too Much Information is called That's Not the Way It Goes, That's the Way It Went. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Sylvie Kovnat. And it featured Peter Choice, Conrad Ventur, Ivy Nicholson, Damian McDonald, and Herbert G. Special thanks to Jessica Agnesens and Kara Oler, who gave me the name for this episode. There's more Too Much Information on the WFMU show page, and that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast. All that and more at WFMU.org.